Why do you dance between two opinions, acknowledging the Lord and seeking his favor, but running after the gods of this world too? You are no better than your fathers before you. I am Elijah, the prophet of the living God. I was born in obscurity and raised in the towns and villages in the mountains of Israel until the day when the Lord called me. Until the day when the Lord God of Israel, whose holy name, Yahweh, we only whisper in our hearts, lest the pagans bandy it about in vain. The Lord called me to be his spokesman to kings and priests and to disobedient and wavering worshipers. In me the wilderness spirit lives. That primitive time in the desert when our fathers followed God and saw his power. And you can hear in the rustle of my rough clothing the wind as it blows in the crags and the caves of the mountains where I have walked with God and prayed. And you can hear in my voice the very words of God as he declares his holiness and calls you to submission. God appointed me at an important time in the history of Israel. It was a time in some ways not unlike your own. But we were the people who belonged to the Lord. He had redeemed us by blood and power from Egypt. He had fed us as he took us through the desert. And our fathers had seen him guide them in a pillar of fire by night, and a pillar of cloud by day. And he had brought them to this rich and fertile land of promise and given it to us as our inheritance. He had given us the way to worship him in purity and holiness and the priesthood and the temple and the blessed King David, who for two generations brought true worship to the land. But these people had always wandered away from God or when they wandered in the desert, even then they worshipped the gods of the Canaanites, the so-called Baals. The word means master in the Canaanite language. And so weak is this fertility god of the Canaanites that he, he has to attach his name to places. Baal of Peor, Baal of Hazor, Baal Perazim, as, as though he lived there. But the living God, the Lord, does not attach his name to places. He is the creator of all things. They were made through him and for him. Everything exists for him. He does not exist for us. But the people fled after the Baals, ran after them, and worshipped them even before we entered the land when we came across the Moabites, one of the southern tribes of the Canaanites. The people were attracted to their worship and began to, began to mingle the worship of God with the worship of Baal until Phineas the priest, by his bold act, stopped the madness of the people and they were restrained. And then again, as soon as he opened up the land and we entered under Joshua, as soon as Joshua and his generation died, the same thing happened. 
the people ran after the Baals, and they intermingled with the people of the land, the Canaanites, and they tried to mix the worship of the true and living God with the worship of a degraded fertility God. It was in my day when the worship of Baal almost displaced the worship of the Lord. It was under the usurping king of the northern kingdom of which I was a part uh, of the house of Omri named Ahab. As he was goaded on by his wife Jezebel, that stinking foreign whore queen of his. You don't like that, do you? It's because you don't like prophets. Jezebel came from the north, from Sidon, a country that bordered Israel. And she brought down with her in her intermarriage with this so-called king the worship of Baal, and she tried to establish it in the land. So she suppressed the worship of the Lord. She killed the prophets of the Lord. And she set up altars to Baal all over, and she even tore down the altars that had been built by the faithful in the land to the Lord in their attempt to worship him in the mountains since they were no longer allowed to travel south to go to the temple. But God would have none of it. He would not allow his people to mix the worship of Baal with all of the prostitution and immorality and child sacrifice and the mutilation of the worshipers with the pure worship, though the people tried to do it. They had forgotten the basic principle, the first of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods besides me. It was at that time that God called me, and he appointed me to declare that there would be a drought on the land until, at his directive, I withdrew it. The cult of Baal, the worshipers of Baal, would know that fertility was truly only in the hand of the Lord. It was not the province of Baal. The drought would last three and a half years. You cannot imagine the devastation that a drought brings. When no rain falls from heaven, the earth begins to dry up until it becomes hard as iron. The, the rivers are reduced to just a, a small stream. The streams and brooks dry up. The ground becomes hard as iron. The seeds won't germinate. The plants won't grow without the grain. The animals, the flocks and the herds, they, they begin to wither away and die. And the people develop a gaunt and hollow appearance. The babies are seen with their bellies distended. And everywhere silence reigns as the people go about their business with little to do except search for food. And when this devastation was complete, the Lord spoke to me. And he said, go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will bring rain on the land. I was living at that time in exile and uh, hidden away, actually, in Sidon, the birthplace of Jezebel in a small town called Zarephath. And I left my hiding place and made my way across the ridge of mountains again back into the land of Israel, the northern kingdom, and uh, went to Samaria, the capital. And there I confronted Ahab. 
I could tell immediately that the drought had not reduced him to repentance. It only served to deepen his anger, as all of God's works do in the hearts of the reprobate. When he saw me, he said, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Me, the troubler of Israel. It was him and that stinking whore queen of his and her painted priests who had troubled Israel with their foul cult. And the time had come for a confrontation of the gods. God would show his power over all the gods of Canaan and especially the chief of their so-called gods, the god of fertility, Baal. So I said to Ahab, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and bring with you the 450 prophets of Baal. It would be 450 prophets to one. The entire cult of Baal against the living only spokesman for the living God. And the site would be Carmel, a perfect site. You see, Carmel is the northern border of Israel, and it's not a mountain, but a, a ridge of mountains that separates Israel from Sidon. And there was a perfect place for this confrontation to take place. And there in that ridge of mountains, there were altars all over that had been built centuries before, used for the worship of various gods. But I knew that there also was a well-known site of an ancient altar to the Lord, the living God. This would be the site where God would confront Baal. I set the date for one week. The day, a week later, dawned bright and cool, but with a promise of heat to come later on. As the people made their way up the mountainside, they were going to a specific place that all knew it is a place that now is in Lebanon and is called El Moracha, the burned place. You will learn why. This is a large plateau in the mountain range, slowly rising, that could hold thousands of people. And it ends at a very specific point. It ends behind scrub bushes and gnarled trees with a wall, a white wall, that shoots perpendicularly up 200 feet in the air and forms a perfect backdrop for the assembled crowd. And in this place, in front of that stone wall, there are many altars. The people gathered there about 9 o'clock in the morning, and they brought with them the 250 prophets of Baal with a gleam of victory in their eyes. There, I got out in front of the people about nine o'clock in the morning, and I said, how long will you dance between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. These people thought they could they could just mingle these two things, have the best of both worlds, God and what he could offer, Baal and what he could offer. And so they sought to try to mingle their worship, but God would have none of that because God demands exclusive worship. And this people said not a word 
They just sat there like sheep. But they had followed Jezebel and uh, Ahab in this wicked sin. And Jezebel had torn down the altars of the Lord and established Baal worship, especially in the mountains, as I knew. And the people thought they could mix these things. They could have the best of both worlds. They could dance between two opinions and no one would care. But God demands exclusive worship. He will not share his glory with another. And it is just as the final prophet the Lord Jesus Christ said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so I, I stepped up before the people to begin the drama that was to unfold the people stood there in front of me like the dumb sheep that they were. Would a wife say to her husband, go, be with other women, and when you're satisfied, come back to my bed? Never. And do you think that the living God would say to his people, go and be with other gods and prostitute yourself under every green tree and on every stone altar, and when you're satisfied, come back and worship me. Never. A thousand times, no. And so I presented my plan. I said, let the prophets of Baal bring two bowls let them take one and prepare it and lay the pieces on the altar, but put no fire under it. I will take the other, uh, prepare it, lay it on the altar, and put no fire under it. And uh, then all of you call on your gods. And I will call on the name of the Lord God. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. It was a good plan. It was one that was given to me by the Spirit of God. And the people bleated, uh, it is well spoken. And so I called the prophets of Baal forward and gave them instructions. Take your sacrifice, prepare your altar, put the wood on the altar, place the pieces there, but put no fire under the sacrifice. These, these prophets and priests of Baal were quite a sight, painted, scarred by their mutilation when they worshipped, already intoxicated with various drinks and potions, though it was early in the morning. They were prepared, I knew, for hours of calling upon Baal. But I gave them instruction twice, put no fire under it, because they were known for kindling fires underneath their altars in a hidden small place. And this small fire, as it burned hotter, would heat up the stones above it. And oftentimes, the wood on the bottom under the sacrifice would ignite 
a small fire would begin that would slowly spread, but there would be no deception this time in the hearing of the people. I said, put no fire under it, and the crowd was gathered close enough that they could see everything that was happening. As I thought, they chose first the largest and fattest of the bulls that they had brought, for they were certain that their God would love the fat of the sacrifice. He would be impressed. And they thought that their God ate the sacrifice. They didn't know. God doesn't care for animals. God cares for the heart of the worshiper. The animal is only a representation of the state of the heart. But they laid their animal in pieces on the altar, and then they began their dance to the sound of drums and pipes. They began to dance around the altar and fell into various ecstatic frenzies, and they began to cry out together, Oh, Baal, hear us! But there wasn't a sound. No word was spoken. About noon, after three hours of this, I, I began to mock them. I said, certainly he is a god, but perhaps he's far away on a journey. Yell louder. Or, or maybe he's busy uh, with something else. Yell louder, maybe he'll hear you. Or perhaps he's relieving himself, I said. That made them angry, and, and they began to cry louder. And to dance with greater frenzy, they began to go into these ecstatic shouting matches against one another that they call prophecies. And for three hours this went on until it began to wind down because they, in exhaustion, began to fall on the earth and swoon. And about three o'clock, the very time when the sacrifice is being prepared in the temple, the evening sacrifice commanded by God, at that moment, the hour of prayer, as all the faithful knew, I stood again before the people, and I said, draw near to me. And the people drew near, and there in their sight, I went to the altar of the Lord that had been torn down and desecrated by the Baal worshipers with their false worship. I removed the stones that had broken, and I found in the rocky earth around Twelve large, smooth rocks, and with them I rebuilt the altar of the Lord. Twelve stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve sons of Jacob. God had made us into a nation, given us a constitution, given us our kings and priests and our worship. He had made us one. But ten of the tribes had broken away to the north and were called Israel, and two were in the south, still had the kings in the line of David and the temple and the worship. While the north, where I lived, was a place that was attempting to mix the worship of the true and living God with these vile fertility gods. And so, representing the nation, I built it with 12 stones laid in order. And, and then I took the bowl and I sacrificed it, cut it in pieces, put the pieces on the stone with the wood underneath them on the altar. 
And then I did something unexpected. I took a spade and I began to scrabble in the rocky earth. It was rock hard. It, it was like iron. But I began to scrabble in the earth until I had dug a trench all the way around the altar. It was rather shallow, but it could hold four gallons of water. And then I said to the people, send down the mountain to the brook Kishon and bring four pails of water back. And so the people did so. And the men came with the four pails of water and I said, pour it on the sacrifice. And they poured it on the sacrifice and the wood and the stones of the altar. And I said, do it again. And they sent four more men down and brought four pails of water. And I said, pour it on the sacrifice and do it a third time. And they did it a third time until the sacrifice and the wood was drenched with water. And the, the trench that I had built was filled with water. And then, in the hearing of all the people, I prayed. Did you know that God is not impressed by human words? To him, sacrifices mean nothing. He is concerned with the heart. He is not impressed by the loudness of someone's voice. Dancing and ecstatic speech means nothing to him. It doesn't show commitment. God seeks the heart of a worshiper. And here I stood before this sacrifice, this burnt offering that would be offered wholly to God, and I prayed. And you might say, well, why, why the sacrifice? Couldn't you just have prayed and God would have acted in the sight of all the people? Well, the reason is that a sacrifice is demanded by God because of sin. And I knew that this sacrifice represented my sin and the sin of all these thousands of people gathered around, the Lord's people, who in fact had given their hearts to other gods. And as God can only be approached through the blood of atonement, I knew that someday he would fulfill that, though for me it was dim. I didn't understand, but how much better you know. How much better you understand that you can only come to God through a sacrifice. That your prayers can only be heard because the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The final sacrifice has been offered. And the, the altar is the cross on which he died. And as you come to God through him, God seeks your heart through the blood of effective sacrifice. I only knew that in types and shadows. I only dimly understood what it's about. But I knew that God would act as I came to him, bringing a heart of submission to him. And so I prayed. In the hearing of all the people, I raised my hands to God, and I said, O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that you are God and that I, your servant, have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you alone are God and that you have drawn their hearts back to you. And in such simplicity, all those who come to God through his Son might come. But even I was not prepared for what happened. I thought that perhaps a flame would spring up on the altar and begin to burn. But instead, 
a ball of fire from heaven fell and consumed in a moment the sacrifice and the wood and the stones of the altar and the earth under the stones and licked up the water that was in the trench. And there was left only a blackened scar in the midst of the earth in front of us. And the people threw themselves on their faces. In abject terror, they began to cry out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And as they continued to say this, I found myself prostrate on the ground with my forehead on the earth, crying out, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And in a moment of supreme insight, the people of God saw the power of God manifested. And they found themselves no longer wavering in their commitment, no longer dancing between two opinions, but reduced to submission and confession and praise. Why did they need that? These were the people whose ancestors had seen the Lord act, who had record of it. God had parted the Red Sea for them. God had spoken to them audibly from Mount Sinai and gave them his commands. God had given them manna in the wilderness to feed them for 40 years when there was no food. God had led them to this promised land and given them this rich and fertile land and all of its blessings with the temple and the priesthood and the purity of worship. They had all these things. It should have led them through generations of grateful praise. But instead, instead in times of affluence, their hearts were turned to other things. They never completely abandoned the Lord, but they thought they could somehow mix that with the gods of this world too and try to get what they offered. But you're the same, aren't you? What you have is so much greater than what they had. You have the cross. You have the empty tomb, the knowledge of sins forgiven. You have the liberty of the Spirit of God, the fellowship of the people of God. You have the purity of worship given to us by God himself in spirit and in truth. It should carry you through generations of grateful obedience. But instead, you try to gain what you can in this world and worship God as well. You give yourselves partly to God, but you are enamored with all of the things that this world could offer and all of the gods of technology and entertainment, all of those things that you feel the heart desires. And God, too. And God, the living God, will have nothing to do with it. He'll have none of that. He demands exclusive worship. He wants the heart of his people given to him in grateful praise and obedience that carries them through this world in such a way that their earthly pilgrimage is a sign to those outside that the Lord, He is God. There is no other. And so there on Mount Carmel, I sprang to my feet and I said, Seize the prophets of Baal. And together we carried them down bodily the side of the mountain to the brook Kishon 
and we executed them there, and their blood flowed and mingled with the waters of that dying stream. You don't like that, do you? That's because you don't like prophets. That's because you don't understand the exclusivity of worship, what it means to belong to the Lord alone and to be his people. That's why you fight against this thought that God demands that we give him alone the glory of our lips and our lives and our obedience. But you understand Jezebel had killed the prophets of the Lord. She had torn down the altars of the faithful. She had caused the kings in Jerusalem to so corrupt the worship of the temple that sacrifices were offered to Baal on the holy altar in Jerusalem. And the living God had said it is time for this to stop. And he ended it there at the burned place, El Maraca, on Mount Carmel. Do you have prophets today? I know you do. But how lonely their voices are. They are those who speak to you from the wilderness where they have been with God and they have sought him and prayed and they have found in their fellowship that God alone is enough. That God fulfills all of his promises and that God alone will prevail. And they're the ones who call you to that. They call you to set aside all the gods of this world, to escape from all of the things that take your attention and your affection away, and to give yourself to the Lord. That's what God tells you today. He speaks through me from long ago, the same message to the people on Mount Carmel. He wants you to cast aside anything else that you trust in and submit to the living God and prostrate yourselves before him and say, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Let's pray together. O Lord God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would capture our hearts in such a way that we would increasingly find ourselves more committed to you and desiring to serve you, not being afraid of people as we so easily are, but wishing to wisely and firmly acknowledge, not just in our hearts on a Sunday morning, but in our lives and our lips, to acknowledge that the Lord, he is God. We pray that you would help us to do this by your grace and for your glory, through the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name.